0: expanded and extended COVID-19-related unemployment benefits ended abruptly on September 6th, many Americans became aware of what low-income Americans experience on a regular basis, a benefits cliff. Usually these actuarial realities are created when income rises above a legally imposed eligibility limit. In the case of pandemic UI benefits, the cliff came for every recipient and very abruptly. Other programs like childcare, housing and Medicaid benefits try to taper as income rises, but it's unavoidable that at some point, the beneficiary has to choose between earning more and maintaining what is often a vital subsidy. These cliffs, no matter how gradual, reduce the incentive to work. On the other hand, the more gradual the taper, the higher the cost to the government, a classic catch 22. To help us understand the benefit cliff phenomena and the perverse incentives they contain, I'm joined by Dr. Alex Reuter. Dr. Reuter is the principal advisor to the Atlanta Federal Reserve's community and economic development team. He specializes in workforce development and has worked as an assistant professor in public policy at the University of South Carolina. He has been published in a number of well-known academic publications and journals and holds a PhD from Princeton, as well as an MPP from the University of Chicago. In addition to learning about Dr. Ruder's vocational journey, we'll discuss the Career Ladder Identifier and Financial Forecasting Tool, or CLIF, he helped develop and the future of workforce development post pandemic. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Alex Ruder, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Brian, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here today to talk about workforce development. Well, it's great to have you to
0: talk about workforce development. I'm always amazed as I'm scanning NBER and other outlets where studies get published, just the breadth of activity at the Federal Reserve in terms of things that I would have no idea. I mean, for instance, that the Fed would want to research on. And for instance, last year when the pandemic started, I found this fascinating study on the impact on economic growth of the 1918 flu. And it it was extremely useful, and I had no idea that the Fed would involve itself in questions like that. So we've got a lot to talk about today, about your research on benefit cliffs and some of the work that you've been doing on that. Before we get into that, I'd like to ask people who come on to this podcast, I hope that we have a significant sort of segment of people who are interested in career issues a little bit younger and are thinking about sort of how they get their careers started. So, I really like to ask people who come on just to kind of talk a little bit about how they got to where they are. What's the origin story for Alexander Ruder, economist, and how you got there? What things sort of drove your interests? When did it first occur to you that this might be a field that you would want to commit your professional life to?
1: I should say, technically, I would probably be categorized as a political scientist. If you categorize people by what their PhD is in, that is. So obviously, I'm not doing political science work in my current job, right? But nevertheless, political science, at least where I studied it, has significant overlap with public policy. And the methodologies that you need to study public policy. So a, a good way to describe my work, I would say, is a public policy researcher. Perhaps that's with being generous in respect to my colleagues who are trained economists. Right? So that there is a little bit of difference there. Workforce development's a pretty broad field, right? And I think it is a good question: How does anyone kind of end up in this in this specific area of economic development more broadly? Right? And you're really looking at the labor force and skills issues and mostly in job training, technical college kind of work. The way I got into it is I have to go back to grad school at the University of Chicago. Public policy, you know, very informative program. I was actually a student of one of your colleagues, Bruce Meyer, when I was at University of Chicago. He probably doesn't remember me, but he, was, he taught a great class on econometrics that I learned a lot from. In that Course of studying public policy, I became very interested in economic development, specifically thinking about it from a regional perspective at the time. You know, what makes kind of cities competitive, you know, from attracting businesses, supporting businesses, basically having a competitive infrastructure for business recruitment. And I did some internships and in, in economic development. That led me to look for a more advanced kind of gradual level internship at the time at the Department of Commerce in Illinois. And it turned out the division I got my graduate level internship in was the workforce development division of the Department of Commerce, which was a fantastic experience. And I was involved in a lot of key initiatives that are still actually going on today in different forms, right? So sector-based strategies were really rolling out significantly at the time. At the time, federal legislation was really just kind of putting a lot of funding into sectoral strategies. So we did a lot of work at the time, even as a grad student and Kind of setting up kind of healthcare career paths, manufacturing career paths in the state. So that was really exciting. Also at the time, there was also a growing shift to online delivery of workforce services, which you know again now is very common. But I feel like back in you know the early 2000s, that was not as common, right? So that's that was also a trend that was fun to be a part of at the time. But I also did as part of that job evaluation of programs. And when you do evaluation and workforce, it really opens up the hood, if you will, on a whole bunch of issues that affect workforce development. Local versus state issues, data quality issues, challenges that areas have in implementing workforce development programs. So I became very interested in just kind of how these programs were structured and implemented, because obviously you need implementation success to have ultimately outcome success. So that internship, and I think the mentors I had at the time in that internship were actually still there. And my mentors from that job kind of still guide me today, which I value greatly. That was my initial entry into the field. So internship at the time, and then I can talk about this too, but over time, that just led to progressively different roles in the field to where I am today. So where did you do your undergrad? I went to University of Florida because I'm from South Florida. You study political science. As I was an a in undergraduate, I was a liberal arts slash pre-med major.
0: Uh-huh. Well, that's an interesting transition into political science. How did that happen?
1: Getting a four-year degree. So I'm, you know, think trying to think back what what truly were my motivations at the time, right? I mean, it's a little hard mm-hmm. to remember without kind of embellishing my motivations. Yeah, anymore. yeah. I do remember I really wanted to just graduate in four years. Right and I I do remember kind of looking at all the options I had and given all prereqs that were required for different options it was like oh this is like a 6 7 year path. Mm. Right so the liberal arts at least it was a 4 year program that I could kind of move on as quickly as possible. I've always been interested in policy work so that that was never like a new thing for me but what I realized is I to get into the field at a meaningful level at an entry level I needed a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And just kind of scanning the programs around I ended up choosing University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some family ties in Chicago, so it made sense to me. It is a it had a program that had the economics rigor that I was looking for because I really wanted to make sure quantitative methods were a significant part of my training, which is definitely an investment that pays off in my view. So that's how I ended up in a policy program at University of Chicago.
0: So let me ask you, how did the liberal arts degree inform that decision? I mean, for instance, was there a particular aspect of liberal arts that you focused on that you found to be useful or what was that connecting? Obviously, you dropped the medicine idea somewhere in there and just decided to go for a non-hard science pathway. But I'm curious, was there something in liberal arts that kind of helped sort of turn a switch for you?
1: Well, I should also back up a little bit more. I'm I'm actually a community college graduate. So, before I even ended up in a liberal arts degree, I got a community college degree in Florida in uh, what field? In just the general studies of community General college. studies, okay. Yeah. So, you know, moving into liberal arts, particularly coming in from a community college background, you know, I mean, the pre-med track was already set. And I took those courses and at least most of them. But liberal arts at, you know, again at the time, It allows you to, and I value this a lot, I mean, to develop writing and research skills probably more than technical fields do at the undergraduate level. I mean, there are exceptions to that, for sure. But at a large university where you're probably not writing, you know, theses in very close contact with professors and committees, I'm not sure if you get a lot of research writing independence unless you're in a liberal arts program. So, I mean, the, the critical reading skills that I got from that, I think, were also foundational to move on. So, But what you did not get outside of kind of pre-med stuff was like a rigorous quantitative, particularly computer science background, right? Because, you know, now I just realize how important, you know, basic kind of computer science knowledge is for so many jobs, which I did get in grad school, but kind of missed out on at the undergrad level. Yeah, that must
0: have been kind of a scramble in grad school to try to catch up with... Statistical methods and use of technology and so on.
1: I mean, I had to go back and take like an undergraduate class in coding, you know, just to kind of build up that foundation.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it's an area that I keep returning to in my own research is that we often push people toward both formally and informally, we're pushing people toward technical fields And that's technical knowledge is so necessary in the contemporary economy. But at the same time, we're just not paying nearly enough attention to these broader skills that you do pick up through liberal arts programming, close reading, analytical writing, especially for the kinds of jobs that the economy produces with good wages and so on. These are extremely important skill backgrounds it's not enough actually I wrote a piece on this recently and it was titled something like you know learning to code isn't enough you do need these other skill sets so it's just fascinating to me that that was kind of your experience but also the opposite can be true of i got this great analytical and reading that background that i got from liberal arts but then i had to go back and fix the other side too so it's a helpful kind of balancing idea for me Okay, so let's thank you very much for that. It's a really interesting background, especially that community college piece. I don't think we appreciate the importance of community colleges enough as on-ramps for deeper education. It's really great. Let's get into your technical work, and I know that anybody who gets their paycheck signed by the federal government has to be clear about when they're talking about their own views and when they're talking about any views that are associated with policy topics. So, how does that work for employees of the Federal Reserve?
1: That is a reality. So I would say that anything I express today are my own views. Right now, you know, I, I do my own research as an employee of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The work I talk about is represents my own views and does not necessarily represent the views of the bank, of the Atlanta Fed, or the Federal Reserve System.
0: Okay. Important. We are listening to Alex Ruder, political scientist and not Alex Reuter, federal employee who works for the Federal Reserve. So you've done a lot of work on benefits cliffs. And I'd like you to start off just defining for listeners what that is, and why they matter.
1: Brief word about benefits cliffs is just want to start out as you know, so I've worked in workforce development for, you know, many years before I started studying benefits cliffs. And strangely enough, do not recall ever encountering benefits cliffs. That's hopefully changed somewhat now. But anyway, for me, at least, it was a somewhat new topic as of a few years ago. So you asked, what is a benefits cliff? i like to think about it a little bit more broadly, I will say, as kind of what I would call an effective marginal tax rate on income. The word effective means we're not just looking at your kind of payroll taxes and your income tax. We're looking at potential losses and financial resources more broadly as your income goes up. That said, usually when we talk about benefits, cliffs, what we mean is for families on public assistance, means tested public assistance, Like, like food assistance through the Supplemental Nutrition and Assistance Program, Children's Health Insurance Program, Medicaid CHIP, it's sometimes called housing assistance through Section 8. Some of you may have heard of that program, and there's a long list of programs that have some means testing, which in other words means that it has an income threshold. Where benefits comes into play is that workforce development is aimed at increasing income. That's a foundational goal of workforce development. Employment, employment in the sector, increasing income. So as income goes up, families are going to likely lose public assistance. The benefits cliff specifically means that that loss in public assistance makes you worse off than you were before the income gain right? It doesn't necessarily how long you're going to be worse off, but it means at least in the initial shock, you're going to be worse off. So that is an effective marginal tax rate greater than 100% of your income gain. Right, So you earn a dollar, you lose more than a dollar in public assistance. Benefits cliffs sometimes are generally used to describe losses in public assistance, even if it does not make you worse off. That's a little bit of a loose language. So I usually think of benefits cliffs as it makes you worse off after the income gain. There's other terminology that you can use. So for example, an income increase. So let's make it concrete by say, let's say a family is making $15, a worker is making $15 an hour as an entry-level nurse. Let's say their job goes to $17 an hour as a nurse. They got a, a pay raise. A benefits cliffs means that that $2 Income gain is eliminated by a larger loss in benefits. We also focus on something we call a benefits plateau. It's not nearly as widely discussed, but a benefits plateau is just what it sounds like. Meaning that let's say you have a $2 income gain. Benefits plateau means that your overall financial resources just drop by $2. So you're no better off than you were before the game. And then in between those two poles, the cliff and the plateau, you have different ranges of effective marginal tax rates, right? And it it all depends on what programs a worker is in, local policies and local cost of living, and then family composition.
0: I would imagine it has to do with individual preferences as well. You know, like thinking about a family might value its housing over its health care, or vice versa. And those are those may have different thresholds and different cliffs and different plateaus. So it's a very complicated formula as it relates to individuals.
1: That's absolutely right. We often abstract the issue and think about it really just in terms of dollars, right? You know, how much dollars are you losing summed across all programs? The issue you're pointing is that in reality, your sensitivity to loss is probably going to vary by the what the program is providing. This comes up a lot with housing and childcare in particular. So there's probably a, a better economic way to think about this is more like willingness to pay for the resource mm-hmm. that I, I'm i kind of intending to explore at some point. I know there's been some research on this, but you you may really not want to lose childcare, even if your income gain is greater than the benefits loss because of the perceived value for you of having mm-hmm. a lot
0: childcare. You've got some sort of complex situation that you're dealing with. In which childcare just plays an enormously outsized role for you personally, and it's like I cannot, under any circumstances, afford to lose that that particular benefit.
1: That's right, and of course, those kind of issues are hard to capture in a an abstract empirical model. I would yeah. say impossible to capture, right? <laughs> Nothing's impossible, but I, I tend to, yeah. In one of the reasons why we always come back to like the work we do on benefits cliffs we hope is one part of the set of information that empowers coaches and workforce development professionals to help them help workers or help workers help themselves so we've
0: we we established that there there are these things called cliffs and plateaus that interact with people's decision making around employment and seeking higher wages and the trade offs that are involved in various benefit program. So you have developed something called the Career Ladder Identifier and Financial Forecasting, or Cliff tool. I have to say that is one of the best acronyms I've ever encountered. Talk about that. What is it? How does it work? What do you do with it? Where is it being used? What do you know about its usefulness to people?
1: And credit to our public affairs team at the Atlanta Fed for coming up with the acronym Cliff. As you can imagine, there was a lot of thought that went into that decision. we Came up with Cliff and we're very happy. So, thank you for your comment. I'd like to briefly mention why this project got started at the Atlanta Fed that I work on. And I think that will inform kind of what the tool is doing. Atlanta Fed and Federal Reserve banks in general are obviously very focused as a primary part of their mission on labor market research, microeconomic labor market research. So, a key dimension of labor market research, not just at the Fed, but across the economics field is labor supply. What are the incentives for people to move into employment or move into greater employment, the so-called extensive and intensive margin in the economics literature? You know, what what are the determinants of people getting a job from a state of not working? And then conditional on working, what are the determinants of people working more hours or earning more money? I mean, these are foundational questions in labor economics. The Atlanta Fed has has been working on that. And some of the research that my colleague's published, you know, probably 3 to 5 years ago was looking at effective marginal tax rates by family wealth quintile. So what that means is when you divide the US population up into wealth quintiles, you know, the lowest income and the highest income, and you include the social safety net, what are the effective tax rates of families by wealth quintile? And that work at the time was suggesting that the effective tax rates on low wealth families were actually higher than, than expected. And there's been a lot of work that's been done since then by other scholars as well. But at the time, that was a finding that we all thought was very interesting. But the question we were starting to ask is, how can we bring this kind of insight into the field, right, to make it more useful to the communities, particularly in the Southeast that we interact with at the Atlanta Fed? And that's a lot of my job is kind of taking research out into the field. What we saw as a missing piece here, and I think this is really important, is benefits cliffs, effective marginal tax rates, labor supply, I mean, this is not a new topic. You know, if you look at social policy and economics, you know, people have been talking about benefits cliffs for 20 years, probably, right? So this is not a new topic. Where we saw a potential gap is the connection of benefits cliffs, concretely to workforce development, right? So when you look at the policy proposals and programmatic proposals that are dominant in workforce development, I'm thinking specifically of like career pathways, career ladders, programs that are meant to, apprenticeships, for example, that are meant to go for entry level wage and up. What do those career paths actually look like accounting for the benefits cliffs that families face when they are starting the career path? So to me, that was a gap particularly because when I worked in workforce development doing evaluations, you know looking at the workforce development system, the American job centers, you know TANF programs, you name it. we were pretty much laser focused on employment outcomes, earnings, you know are you employed in the sector? what are the wage gains from quarter two to quarter four? and putting that next to evaluation research that shows at best mixed results on the effectiveness of career pathways, right? So what we started to do, just from a purely presentational perspective, is let's take common career pathways that are being modeled by states and local areas and put out there as kind of like, this is the model we need to be following. Let's take that, put it next to the workers you actually serve, because a lot of workers in the workforce system are on public assistance. Right. So let's see what those career pathways look like once we account for their actual losses in public assistance. The Results we were showing, again, just from a presentation perspective, we were just going out in the field, talking to chambers of commerce, talking to American job centers, talking to nonprofits. We were showing that under certain conditions, not all conditions, the return to career pathways can be inverted. Like so, you start you start in on a career pathway
0: program and you end up making less? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yeah.
1: yeah okay. That's right. So again, not every situation will have an extreme result, but we, the one career path we looked at, we were really focused on, at the time, this evaluation that had come out from the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was talking about how few entry-level nurses advance from that kind of starting point as like a certified nursing assistant, which really requires about, let's say, six weeks of training. Why do so few of those people move on to higher-paying healthcare jobs, despite the fact that the career pathways are very well developed? So when we modeled out that path over time, you know, again, we're not looking at the traditional way to study benefits cliffs is to say, let's just imagine your salary goes from $10 to $12 an hour and let's calculate how much public assistance you're going to lose. So that's 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 useful for an immediate decision, but workforce development does not look just at tomorrow. It's it's building on a model that assumes some form of career advancement over time. So when we looked at this nursing career pathway over time, and we contrasted the employment view to like this benefits cliffview which we call net financial resources kind of like a family's disposable income you could see that well the the payoff to moving up a career pathway is actually not there for these families right and the implications of that are maybe the the design from our from the policymakers perspective the design of these career pathways fundamentally may need to be rethought to some in some extent if we think the justification for these career pathways is increasing standard of living as the worker goes up so, that was the intellectual kind of background. And we're, we're just going around the Southeast and around the country, kind of just talking about this, this finding and how we've developed this methodology to look at benefits cliffs over time as a worker ages, right? Because the benefits cliffs workers face are not static, right? They change over time. And what we noticed was that employers, nonprofits that are doing the actual job coaching, community organizations, Wanted to have this data localized, and they wanted it in more of an actionable way. So, you know, again, we had like a research paper, we had some slides, kind of talking about specific case studies. It quickly became that we need to actually create some kind of tool so local areas can take this insight to help their own work, whatever their work is. That is what gave rise to this clip tool, career ladder identifier, and financial forecaster. So, the basic logic of it is, we partner with local organizations states or nonprofits or you know there's a large range of organizations. We tell them to you need to tell us what career paths you have prioritized locally, what type of people you serve, and we're going to give you a set of tools. We have kind of several different versions of the tool that is are going to allow you to incorporate this more holistic financial measure of performance into your work. That's the background of the Cliff tool. And I want to add one part of it too is that I don't necessarily think of this career tool as a benefits-cliff tool, which may sound surprising because the benefits-cliff calculation is so fundamental to it. I'd like to also emphasize that it's also about just pure career exploration. In particular, what occupations or career paths are going to get families to some measure of economic self-sufficiency or a living wage? and For that reason, the tool also allows people to forecast wage growth in their chosen job. So you can get some idea about when your job is going to get you to whatever a locally defined measure of success is, right? And in fact, I will say that in some of our evaluation work so far, that understanding the path to economic self-sufficiency, or sometimes called the living wage, or sometimes called the United Way Alice threshold, you may have heard of that. It's very useful to kind of see where from a starting salary, how long it's going to take you to get to that measure, because people may not have an idea about where their job choice is going to actually get them over a kind of a longer term period. At best, it's going to encourage people to actually complete a career pathway rather than to kind of stay where they are. So that's the, the essence of the tool. It's combining this kind of job search and kind of path to economic self-sufficiency Along with a more holistic look at a family's disposable income.
0: Yeah, and how those how that pathway affects their the incremental improvements in income and how that then affects eligibility for benefits that feeds back into their interest in pursuing these things. very, very interesting. Can you give us some examples of you know particularly good illustrations of you talked about healthcare. And the nurse nursing career pathway. If you looked at that, say in Atlanta or in Houston or in another city where you're working with government or these local partners to say, all right, this is this is what you're trying to do. Here's how it's actually going to interact with wages and benefits. And then has anybody like said, okay, we do need to rethink this and we need to do something differently and what that thing is?
1: The tools are meant to facilitate, I think, three conversations. One is just research. So for local areas that want to do research, two is programmatic and policy change that would make these pass in-demand jobs smoother for families. And then three is pilot program design. So I've seen changes along all dimensions, not all of which are attributable to our tool, right? I'll just say. Mm-hmm. For example, I've seen some changes in... Making career pathways actually easier for families to complete. So recognizing that the entry-level job given benefits loss is actually a position that's not going to be very good for the family. What are some barriers to advancement more quickly into a career path? Concretely, what do I mean? I've I've seen some local job centers, Workforce Investment and Opportunity Act, right? Innovation and Opportunity Act, WIOA. I've seen some cases where people have looked at their internal policies and found Barriers to people coming back to get additional training to move up a career path, you know, barriers such as you need to wait three years before you get additional training dollars, right, to move up a career pathway. And people said, you know, I think we need to waive those because if people are wanting to upskill, we should give them that opportunity. Right. So I think that's that's one piece that I've, I've seen to be promising. Right. I mean, there may be some low hanging fruit barriers out there mm-hmm. that are preventing people from moving up career pathways. And then to me, that was one of them. Right. If you have a policy that says people need to wait three, four years before getting additional training support, that seems like a barrier. Yeah. The second dimension I've seen is people are implementing pilot programs to smooth out the larger cliffs. Right. So that's the evidence on the effect of benefits cliffs on career advancement is complex, right? So it's not just the it's not that everyone's just turning down jobs right? Because of fear of losing benefits, right? That's, that's not what the literature to the best of my synthesis of it is. But you do have some, some subset of the population that faces relatively large cliffs, particularly childcare. Healthcare is another big one, by the way, but let's focus on childcare. The loss of a childcare subsidy is very large. It could be $10,000 or more in value, right? So you would have to have a large income gain to justify such a loss. So we've been working with some pilot programs that are phasing that out over, for example, example, a three-year period, so that people aren't caught by a sudden loss of $10,000. That's been a promising practice so far, where I think there's still work to do. And we've only been doing this for a short amount of time. And I'm kind of excited about where this this goes is, I, I think there's more integration that needs to happen between this holistic financial view. Of benefits cliffs and how career pathways are being designed in workforce development plans. Right? I, I mean, in, despite the fact career pathways have been around for a long time now, I talk to, a, it seems like a, an organization per week that does not really have a good understanding what the career pathways locally are. And I think that as we're constructing this career paths, that if people start paying uh, more attention, not that they don't pay attention, but more attention to the target population, And what are the career paths that are going to actually pay off for them that provide a clear incentive? I'd like to see that kind of built in more to the design of workforce programs going forward. And then the last thing I'll say on this as well is a part of federal workforce development legislation asks states, well, it requires states, but states have some flexibility to consider economic self-sufficiency as a measure of workforce development success. So, right now, that measure, it seems like a lot of states are kind of using the federal recommended measure, but I've seen more local areas and states adopting different measures of economic self sufficiency, which means it's a type of measure of a local living wage. Like, how much do you need to earn to cover key basic expenses without public assistance? I've seen more of a move to bring that measure of success into local performance. What that does is it changes the nature about how you're offering training for workers. Because I don't think that necessarily the short term, quick placement in a job that doesn't offer a lot of economic growth is going to allow you to do well on a measure of self-sufficiency, right? It's going to kind of check the box on employment. But if you're concerned about improving financial well-being and moving families closer to this, what we call a self-sufficiency target. Then adopting a different measure is gonna, I think it's gonna have implications for how organizations are actually conducting their program design.
0: So what would the different measure look like then?
1: Probably gonna be higher. It's gonna be higher, right? Now, the current measure of self-sufficiency, if you if a local organization wants to use this, there's two ways to use different measures. One, you can use a measure to determine if people are eligible for your services. So for example, if you are below, let's say 150% of the federal policy threshold, you're gonna be eligible for workforce development services. Now, if you change that to a measure of living wage or self-sufficiency, the self-sufficiency measure is gonna change two things. Eligibility determinations, so figuring out who's eligible for programs. For, as I said, right now, for you can some local areas may say Anyone below 150% of the federal policy threshold is eligible for job training. And I'm kind of making up the number about 150%. But if you change that to a higher measure, which, and again, these self sufficiency metrics that are common, so MIT living wage, University of Washington self sufficiency standard, United Way Alice, Atlanta Fed's cost of living index, these are kind of high, higher than some people expect because they're indexed to your family composition. A family with three children is going to have a higher cost of living than a family with just one child. So what what would change is if you increase the eligibility threshold, more people are suddenly eligible for services. Now you're not providing workforce development training just to perhaps the most low income hardest to serve measures of a community, perhaps. But people that are currently employed and want to upskill are now eligible for service. That's impact number one. Impact number two is if you're evaluating performance as a gain to self-sufficiency, right, not just employment, not just wage gain, but are you moving closer towards what we may call like a local self-sufficiency target, that's going to change how you are judging the performance of your job training programs, particularly in what people are choosing, right? So I would imagine areas that are moving a relatively higher proportion of people into, say, IT versus healthcare or some other occupations are gonna be moving families closer to the self-sufficiency standard. And it provides, I think, also a window for thinking about a longer term of service. What I mean is that to get to a self-sufficiency measure our living wage is probably a multi-year. So it would be asking us to look beyond kind of immediate results to a little bit of a longer term tracking of families that are served by workforce development. That's yeah, really
0: interesting. I mean, I, a couple thoughts occur. One is that every time you modify this there's a budget impact to either the federal government or the state government or both because you're you are in essence expanding the benefit to try to smooth out the cliff and to build greater in this case to build greater self-sufficiency but i think that that creates a host of kind of political difficulties around trying to fix these cliffs because it leads to higher spending and presumably at some point, higher taxes and and trying to do this. The other thing is I'm wondering, you know, you've got programs like TANF that their performance metric is employment. And that's really, you know, getting people off of the benefit and into a job is really the only measure of, I'm probably overstating that, but it's the key measure of success. That's not the same thing as Even what the existing WIOA, metrics are which are all about you know retention and wage growth and advancement and employment those are all you know that's what we look at so you've got a disalignment i guess between program goals especially as they relate to low income populations and so it sounds it sounds really great to talk about we sort of want a longer runway on this we want people to get further up and at, away from poverty so they're less likely to fall back in we want we want more lasting change. I wonder when I think about the Workforce Investment Act system, if that doesn't result in sort of giving the WIOA system another out from actually dealing with the harder to serve populations because they're not oftentimes in terms of their own performance metrics, they don't really want to spend too much time on helping very disadvantaged individuals because success rates are lower, wages are lower, retention is lower, there's all sorts of complications. Anyway, this is a few of the reactions that I had while you were you were describing that. I invite you to come back on anything that you want to say about those observations.
1: They're great observations. And I don't want anyone to take away that I propose these solutions are simple, straightforward, and easy. A lot of thought has to go into many of these like kind of phase out programs, you know, that mitigate benefits cliffs or plateaus, as well as changes the local performance metrics, right? To think about the the budget impact and serving more people, some areas are having a hard time serving enough people, right? Recruiting people into the job training services that are offered. Right. So they actually have extra dollars because they're having a very hard time getting people to come in for training. So for those areas, increasing the threshold of who's eligible may only mean that they're actually able to spend all their training dollars. For other areas that are already at capacity, that's a much different calculus, right? For sure. And then, you know, thinking about, you know, how to smooth out these programs. I I mean, without a doubt, government finances are going to play a complex role here. You would, for any kind of large scale benefit mitigation strategy, right? You would probably have to look at, or of course you would have to look at What is the cost and the long-term gain in terms of kind of a cost-benefit analysis? Does paying to phase out a program, if it has the expected labor market boost that we would hope it has, will, for example, ultimate savings and tax revenue boosts outweigh the cost of the program, right? That's what we would have to do that kind of stuff. There's There's alternatives though, right? And again, nothing is easy and careful policy thought has to go into this, but... Other ways that you could think about doing it is if the cliff really is a barrier, right? So if loss is a barrier, other strategies would be number one: you could make the program less generous early on when wages are low. But the trade-off of that would be you could potentially smooth the cliff with that savings of money, right? That requires the policymaker to make a a policy choice about where need is greatest. Is it the low-income workers who need that extra support? Or is it the people that are about to cross the cliff? We actually have a paper on the child care subsidy program that does a exercise somewhat like that. So that's an option too. And then uh, another area that we're only that so has a well established tradition in public administration scholarship. And I'm now just starting to look at very seriously, and my colleagues are are what's known as administrative burden. So beyond just the financial decisions that go into the decision to be on benefits or not, or to kind of lose benefits is you know, thinking about what people have to go through to get back on those programs or sign up for those programs in the first place. So if indeed it is the case that one of the reasons why people are hesitant to lose public assistance is the difficulty to get back on them, and that's preventing risk-taking, you know, maybe one complement of the arsenal of strategies we bring to these issues is a serious look at administrative burden, which I think is luckily something a lot of states have been looking at. When they're trying to do things like improve program integration, you mentioned TANF and Workforce. Yeah, that's a great example. So the more there's alignment, great, right. in terms of enrollments across those programs, the less difficult it's going to be for families to sign up for this myriad of services.
0: Have you looked at all at the way that the state of Utah organizes its Department of Jobs and, as far as I can tell, they've done an extremely thorough job of program integration, probably best in class on both the front end and the back end, but I'm curious if you've looked at it.
1: I have not looked at Utah. Yeah. should
0: have. We'll send you a... And for anybody who is interested in this topic, we did a report on this. It was actually authored by one of our visiting fellows, Mason Bishop, who sort of started his career in workforce development on that project, helping the then governor figure out how to make the state statutory changes that were necessary. Mm-hmm in order to achieve this kind of integration, and then also persuade the federal government to go along with the idea because it involved providing some flexibility at the federal level as well. But we got a report on that on our website, and I'll be happy to put that in the show notes so people can have easy access to it. It's really worth reading if you're interested in this topic. So we're, we're running up on the end of our time. I wanted to get your reflections before we wrap this up on the mother of all benefits cliffs that we just passed through with the end of the pandemic unemployment insurance emergency programming that was put in place by Congress in March of 2020, been extended a couple times, modified. What are your thoughts just like on how that's worked? I know the Federal Reserve, one of the Federal Reserve banks, I think it was San Francisco, looked at the disincentive effects of those benefits. But I'm curious as to what your take is on that issue. Is this what's keeping people or has been keeping people out of the workforce?
1: I've been trying to get grips on this question for, for months, obviously. You know, with the original rollback of the extended benefits in some states that happened even before September, then of course, the September nationwide end, roughly nationwide end to this. You know, the how do you begin to approach this problem, right? I don't like to make personally kind of kind of pronouncements like for or against until I have the research I need to really make this decision. So luckily, I'm not in a position of like a elected official where I have to make this call. So you can go back to research from the Great Recession. You can read about the estimates are kind of across different ranges. But I think you could safely say that there is some disincentive effect of extended unemployment insurance. Right? There's debate on how big it is. You can also take from that literature that extended unemployment benefits does provide a financial cushion to families that are unable to work, and it smooths consumption. That's kind of the you know, the Raj Chetty argument, and uh, Jesse Rothstein has some work on that question as well. So the questions I'm trying to ask answer right now in my own work are: Yes, I mean, so are the conditions that justify extended unemployment still there? That did justify it at the time. Right, So clearly, that's no longer an issue because it's gone. So the questions we have to begin to ask and look at very carefully, I just haven't seen the the data since this change just happened in September, are, you know, so we know roughly from survey evidence, why are people not working? So why do we have so many openings? And Why is labor supply not picking up, right? So the range of issues we see, there's going to be some disincentive effect, right? So this the drop in you extended UI should correct that, right? So we should see some people coming back to work. Where I'm still open, and I, I think a lot of people are, is So, what's going to happen with the, the whatever the subset of the population is that has the difficulties with child care access. You know, I know that a lot of child care centers have contracted availability of slots. So that's going to be a, a drag on employment, likely. The health concerns, I mean, that's still going to play a role. We know people that are unable to go back to work or for some health-related reason and, and fear of, obviously, COVID-19. And then there's going to be some transition people, which I think we're still trying to figure out is how many people are going to decide that now is the time to upskill because the opportunities before me do not look appealing anymore. right? And I know a lot of people are thinking about that as well. So I think until we get answers to those three, at least those three questions, we're at least not going to be able to make an assessment of the end of extended unemployment that captures the nuances of the effects on different people.
0: Yeah, well, in DC, we always like to refight the last war. So I'll be interested in hearing what your analysis is of that. I think you're right. And the survey we did a survey of workers, which we'll also include in the show notes if anybody wants to read it, but of unemployed workers, why they're unemployed, still unemployed. This is you know from back in July. But, you know, it really was the one and two, and I can't remember which was one and which was two, but it was concerns over COVID and then people caring for family members, mostly children, I think, and not being able to get back to work. And then this the more generalized pandemic effect of people kind of reassessing, you know, where what do they want to do? I mean, these are workers. A lot of these are workers who've never been unemployed before. They work all the time. They work extremely hard. So it's not a question of, I don't like working. They seem to like working a lot. But they are kind of stepping back and saying, "Do I really want this hospitality sector job anymore?" Many of them, particularly Hispanics, have opted for training, you know, and going back to school and trying to upskill and find something new. So i that's my take on it. I think that there is, of course, a number of people who, yeah, unemployment in Netflix is kind of nice, so I'll just do that. But I don't think that that's most people. I think that most people, missed working and missed the social exchange that went along with it. So anyway, thanks so much for that. It was a bit of a detour from our overall topic, but but not completely unrelated. Alex Ruder, thank you so much for the hour that you spent with us talking about these critical issues. And I am anxious to stay in touch with you as you put out more research on this topic. I think I followed benefit cliffs for 20 years in my work in the federal government, but much of that was in workforce development. I don't remember a single conversation about how training and work opportunities might impact wages to a degree that people actually reconsider whether they they want to make more and want to go through training to make more just because it's not ultimately worth it to them. So again, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you, Brent, for the invitation and the questions. And thank you for your own scholarship in workforce development. It's been very helpful for me to read the body of work you put out from, as you said, the effects of unemployment to the work on formerly incarcerated workers. Very helpful.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast, let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.